Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Well, guys, it's so good to get to be with you guys this morning, and I just walked in and there's actually something physical you could just feel in your body in this place with you guys just worshiping. It's been a couple weeks since I've been able to be down here, but I'm truly thinking, hey, can we give it up for Ismail, you guys? This guy, let me just take a moment that he probably doesn't want me to do. This guy works so hard every week to set up the sound and the media and does it in the background tirelessly. His attitude's amazing. Uh, This is not an easy room to mix sound in, as you can imagine, and he does a fantastic job. Am I good? Not today. Amazing. Hey, one more time, let's give it up for Ismail. What a gift. Well, friends, it is great to be with you. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Benji, and my wife and I, Jen, who's not here with us today, she was supposed to be, but... Our daughter, Jubilee, got a fever last night, so she's at home taking care of her. Uh, But we have the privilege of getting to be one of the pastors here on staff and getting to love and serve you guys. And I've heard such amazing things about last week and Easter and the incredible day that was. And it's a joy to get to be here. Uh, Little side note, today is, um, next to Father's Day, the least attended church day of the year, statistically. So I feel like you guys need like an extra like gem in your crown or something like God's like just like the extra faithful for showing up the week after Easter well done Uh, but we wanted to take time this morning uh, just to do a few things Uh, we're kicking off a new series next week so it's a little bit of an in-between but just to take some time and just to applaud what God has been up to and what he's doing in you and just a little bit of a report what's happening across Light Church both in Encinitas and in here and even our partnership in Tijuana at Ciudad de Dios. It has been an incredible last few weeks. Um, In between what's happened down here in Encinitas, as far as we know, there's been over a hundred people who've made decisions to follow Jesus for the first time, which is unreal. In between our young adults community and downtown and in Sinise, over 60 people have been baptized in just the last couple of weeks. Um, Pastor Gustavo in Ciudad de Dios just sent us pictures this week. He baptized 140 people on Easter at the refugee camp. I also wanted to let you know our partnership at the refugee shelter has been flourishing. We had a really big problem a couple months ago of food security, as you can imagine. Feeding 1,700 people three meals a day uh, is not an easy task. And we asked Light Church to kind of be the front runners on developing a food security program. And I want to let you know, not only has it been developed, there's been multiple chicken coops built, a plan for irrigation and farming has been in place. But organizations like World Relief have heard about it, and they've actually come alongside and have promised that this will be done within the next year. So all of those people and anyone else who comes in will make sure there's enough food security. So I just want to say, it has been such a beautiful season in this community, and we know that we're one small part of God's great story he's telling through the church, but it really is an incredible uh, just time to be here and to be a part of it and to be here specifically on this week. So I'm just going to go ahead and pray, and we're going to dive into the message this morning. Jesus, 
Thank you. There's so much to celebrate. New life, Lord God. Baptisms moving from death to life. Lord, we thank you for the care of life, Lord Jesus, as happening in our city in Tijuana. Lord, I pray that you just continue to breathe and move in the midst of our community, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. In 1956, the art world changed quite dramatically as Jose Gutierrez, an artist in Mexico, for the first time created a line of acrylic paints that would be distributed to the masses. Now before that point, if you were a painter, you either worked with oil painting or watercolors. And because of technology that was advanced through the 1940s and 50s, they were able to present a type of paint that now is most commonly used called acrylic paint that dries in a fraction of the time. It holds its texture. It looks like oil paint. And so the art world kind of clung to this new innovation and began to paint largely with, with acrylic paint. That began to accelerate this idea of we can make good art faster as the technological revolution added the idea of digital art. And nowadays, it's not enough just to have great art. You want to have great art fast. And there's a few artists who have seen that there's a danger to that. There's actually a beauty in the rejection of efficiency when it comes to art. One of those artists is by the name of Makato Fujimura, who's a renowned artist whose art's been in galleries all around the world. And one of the pieces that he was commissioned recently is called Consider the Lilies. I think we have a picture of it. And so this currently is displayed at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. But when he was commissioned for this art, he decided to go about this painting in a very unique way, one that engaged a slower process. He writes that it was done with over 80 layers of finely pulverized precious minerals, oyster shell white, and painted with sumi ink that has been cured for over a century, as well as gold and platinum powders mixed with hide glue or Japanese sanzibon, which is no longer being made, to adhere the minerals onto a hand-pulled Japanese paper. The painting depicts Easter lilies, with triumphant flowers opening up but the, the suggestion that even these common lilies are transformed into post-resurrection generative reality. This style of art is known as Nihonga, also known as slow art. So Fujimura has this beautiful, what he kind of became famous for, was his leaning towards the slowness of art. And not only is this a beautiful portrait, but it's actually the process of that that adds to its beauty. And the reason we're drawing our attention to this work of art is because this isn't just a different kind of medium. It's actually a metaphor for the Christian life. This whole week, we're reminded that we live in the in-between. We live in the in-between between, between re resurrection and new creation. What do we do with that? What do we live with in this space, in a world that demands transformation at a rapid and an exhausting pace? And I think the invitation this morning from Fujimura is actually we need to realize what God is doing in us and even through us might be more slow but also more beautiful than we could ever imagine. 
In his book, Art and Faith, he says that Jesus' loves extends beyond our utilitarian need to survive our pragmatic or a pragmatic need for a savior. Jesus' love is gratuitous, extravagant, and costly. My art imitates this through the use of expensive minerals, gold, and platinum, and a reliance on a slow process that fights against efficiency. Experiencing God through the creative process may fight against our assumption that such a process can be done by taking in data and processing it efficiently. And the reason why this is so compelling for us is there is a temptation for us to treat our spirituality in the same way. That maybe I raised my hand at Easter, I gave my life to Jesus, but then all of a sudden I realized that the transformation I was hoping for didn't happen in the time frame that I was hoping for. And maybe it's not in the terms of reading, maybe it's years. Maybe you're like, why am I still in finding myself in these patterns or in these different things that I'm getting caught up or tripped up in? And realizing that God is doing something beautiful in you, it just may take more time than we want to accept. But nonetheless, it is doing something truly sensational. And my hope this morning is that we start understanding the Christian life as the greatest art we can contribute. Francis Schaeffer says that no work of art is more important than the Christian's life. And every Christian is called to be an artist in this sense. The Christian's life is to be a thing of truth and also a thing of beauty in the midst of a lost and despairing world. Jesus, before he went to the cross and before he resurrected, had a conversation with his disciples about today, about the moment in between resurrection and new creation, about the space that we are going to be in. And what Jesus reminds his disciples of is something of art. It's something that takes a long time. It's something that's beautiful. It's something that's costly. It's something that will produce something compelling for the world to want to be a part of. And so my hope in the next few minutes is that we would zoom in on some of these words that Jesus said to ask ourselves the question, what is God making in us and through us? What is the Christian life that he's inviting us into? And if you're brand new to the Christian faith, maybe you're even on the fence or skeptical or curious about it, my hope is that this would give you a little bit of a preview of the very core of the Christian life, what we're called into. For those of you who've been following Jesus for a long time, this carries with it just as much of significance because we need to be called back to the center again and again and again. We have this, this temptation as human beings to always look for the new, to always look for the thing that feels novel. But oftentimes Jesus wants to call us back to something that is more true and central to who we are. And that's what this morning is all going to be about. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to John chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 33 and we're going to read through John 14 verse 7. Keep in mind that those chapter and verse markers were not in the original manuscript. So this is one long dialogue that sometimes we like to separate, but it's actually one conversation that's happening. And as we do, we're going to be looking for two things. Number one, what is God up to in the in-between? And what are we supposed to be up to in the in-between? And so kind of with those two questions in mind, let's, let's read this together. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to follow along on the screen. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you, where I'm going, you cannot come. 
A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is engaging with his disciples. This is the night before he's crucified. There's a sense of urgency. And in this time, he's trying to prep them. But he does it, if we're honest, if you read this, it's a little bit confusing. Because he begins by saying, listen, where I'm going, you can't come. And then a couple of verses later, he says, where I'm going, you can't come now, but you will later. And then he says, I'm actually going to show you the way to go. So which one is it? I believe that what Jesus is saying here, and, I, and most scholars would agree that this is actually pointing to different events. The first one is the cross. Jesus is saying, where I'm going, you can't go, meaning you can't bear the cross that I'm about to bear. This is for me and me alone. But the second phrase is, you can't go there, but you will go there eventually, is talking to Peter directly, saying someday you actually will be crucified yourself. It won't carry the same cosmic weight as mine does, but you yourself will follow this. And then to Thomas, he shifts gears and he starts talking about where he's going in terms of new creation and preparing a place for us. And he says, you absolutely know the way to get there because you've seen me. And so he's speaking to this in-between space of, of as we wait and long for the reconciliation of all things and new creation, there are things that he is up to and there's things that we are up to. And these are the three things I want us to pay attention to this morning. Number one is his cross creates in us a radical type of love. Secondly, his preparation of where we are going to go someday creates in us a heart that's at rest. Thirdly, that his way that he invites us into creates in us an opportunity for surrender, relationally-based surrender. So I want to just talk to you about these three different themes in this passage and how they relate to our life and the centrality of the Christian faith. Number one begins with this idea of love. This love that is predicated on and built upon the idea of the cross. You'll notice that this conversation begins with this demonstration of his love. Very first and foremost, his introduction just says, my children. It's a term of endearment. He looks at them as he's about to die, and he refers to them not as disciples in this moment. He doesn't refer to them as workers. He looks at them with a level of almost intimacy in his own heart and says, my children, 
where I'm about to go, you can't come. And that is a statement of love because where he's about to go is the cross. Saying, I'm about to do something for you as my children you could never even imagine. And he displays this profound sense of love that they must posture themselves to receive. And after he does that, he then looks at them and he says, and as a result of that, you ought to love one another. He goes on to say, I'm actually giving you a new command. You have to love one another as I have loved you. He actually repeats this phrase, love one another, three times. And if you know anything about Hebrew language, or even kind of the the Greek language or the Hebrew tradition, is that when something is repeated twice, pay attention. If something is repeated three times, it's to the superlative. It is to the supreme measure. And so Jesus repeats himself three times very quickly, saying, love one another, love one another, love one another. What is the message Jesus is trying to say before he dies? That all of his death is in hopes that we would then live in response in a loving way. But he has this phrase, I'm giving you a new command, which, again, is a bit shocking because loving your neighbor was not a new command. It's in Leviticus 19. It's built within the the very much the Jewish understanding of we are to love our neighbors as what? Ourselves. And the, the word new comes in because Jesus is changing the source of your love from the love of yourself to the love that he's giving you. It's no longer enough for you to love your neighbor as yourself. You actually have to love your neighbor the way Christ loved you. John Stott says that when Jesus said to his disciples, I've loved you so you must love one another, this raised the ante considerably. The measure of love for their neighbor was no longer their love of themselves, but Jesus' love for them. And this could not be more radical. The bar, my friends, is set so high. I mean, to love your neighbor as yourself is hard enough. I mean, I'm teaching my kids this every single day. Do you want to be treated like this? Then don't treat your sister like this. I mean, this is, we, we're working this theme of loving your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus says, that's great. It really helps society if we live according to that golden rule. He says, but I'm after something deeper. I actually want you to love people the same way I loved you. Keep in mind, a few verses earlier, he had just washed their feet, taken off his rabbinical road, tied a towel, a slave's towel around his waist, got on his hands and knees and scrubbed the dirt off their weathered feet. So as he's saying, love them as I've loved you, he still has the dirt from their feet in his fingernails. He says, everything I just did for you, I want you to do for one another. And it's not just in the context of washing feet, it's in the context of what he's about to do and going to the cross. And you might be here this morning and you're being like, how in the world am I supposed to love people like that? That seems not only impossible, it almost seems dangerous. How am I supposed to give that kind of love? What what kind of source can I draw that from? And the whole point of the Christian message is that John later on writes in a letter that we can't love like that unless you've first been loved like that by God. And so the whole point of the Christian life, if you, again, if you're brand new to this whole idea of Christianity, or if you've maybe forgotten, is that this is all built around the idea that you have been loved more than you could ever imagine. And in response, you are invited into live a life of love beyond any what anyone could ever compare. 
And that is when Christianity is at its best. It is when we are a community that has received the love of God in such a profound way that we become a community of love, so much so that Jesus says the entire world will use that as the definitive marker that you are a follower of me. If we were to ask what are the definitive markers for a Christian church today, you might say something like three worship songs, a 30-minute sermon, communion, coffee in the back, this kind of person, this kind of morals, a lot of them vote like this. Whatever sort of cultural markers that would be ascribed to us, all of those, unfortunately, are not what Jesus intended. If, the wor- if we were living into what Jesus invited us into, if people asked, let's just take our church, said, hey, Light Church. Oh, Light Church? I don't know much about them. But I know their love. I know how they love one another. I know how much they believe they're loved by God. And when we begin to start doing that, it creates a compelling vision. And when we don't, it becomes quite dangerous. Again, John Stott says that lovelessness among believers nullifies their witness to the world and reveals them as hypocrites. This is why Paul, when he writes his letter to the Colossians, in the first chapter, he says that the gospel is bearing fruit. What kind of fruit is the gospel bearing in this little church plant in Colossae? He continues on to talk about that what was given to them growing throughout the whole world just has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is faithful minister of Christ on behalf, who has told us of what? Your love in the spirit. So the reputation of the church in Colossae was their love. And Paul, when he writes him, says, the gospel is bearing fruit. What is the fruit of the gospel? It's love in the spirit. It's loving in a different kind of way. And so if you are considering what it means to follow Jesus, begin with the consideration of how much you've been loved. Let that naturally move you into what would it look like for you to live a life poured out for the love of others. If you've been a Christian for 50 years, this never changed. There's no like Christianity, like 201 or 501, like cool, I got the loving thing down, what's next? This is it. David G. Benner is a psychologist out of Canada, says this, love reconnects us to life. The truth of Christ's life is that life is love and love is life. There is no genuine life without love. Self-interest suffocates life. Life implodes when self-interest is at the core. This is why the kingdom of self is based on death. Ultimately, taking care of number one takes care of no one. For the only way to truly care for myself is to give myself in love for others. There I will find my truest and deepest fulfillment. In a world that continually wants to push a narrative of self-love, and I get it. There's a lot of self-hatred. I don't think the antidote is more self-imposed love. It's the receiving of divine love. 
and it's actually the giving of your love for others. This is desperately what we need and desperately at the core of everything Jesus invites us into. The second thing we find out about this life and the in-between, the slow art that God is doing in our lives is not just about the love we've given and received, but it's actually the state of our heart. He looks at his disciples and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. If you have a Bible, you just want to underline that phrase. Maybe print it out. Read it every morning. Jesus looks at his disciples. Keep in mind, circumstantially, it's about to get rough. It's moments away from going to the cross, which would then lead to a very radical, fast-moving witness and movement in the world, but ultimately to all of those guys being martyred, looks at them and has the audacity to say, don't let your hearts be troubled. You would assume that would be accompanied with a a full expense paid ticket to an all-inclusive club in like, you know, Cancun. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Here's an escape. But he doesn't do that. Maybe that's just me. When I think of my heart not being troubled, for me it means I'm not stressed. But for Jesus, when he says, don't let your hearts be troubled, his response of how that even takes place says this, you believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms, and if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. We're in the in-between, right? He's saying, I'm going away, I'm preparing a place for you. But there's something really fascinating about this passage. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. How? He says, Believe. What a fascinating conjecture to make. That our belief in Jesus actually settles our heart. Now, in order to understand what he's talking about here, we have to recognize that when I say the word belief, it conjures up images that were different than the original audience. Because the word belief, if I were to say, do you believe in Santa Claus? Do you believe in you know, free will? Do you believe in this? Do you believe the Padres are going to win the World Series? The answer is yes. Thank you. Um, The idea is that you intellectually agree with something. You mentally affirm a certain set of beliefs. That's our definition of belief. The Greek word used here is the word pastuyo, and it means something quite different. Belief means to put the full weight of trust on something. To put the weight of your life into something. And so when he looks at it and says, don't let your hearts be troubled, believe in me. What he's saying is, I want you to put the full weight of your life into my hands. And that will produce rest in your heart. That will, that will take away the troubledness in your heart. Not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about your circumstances. I'm talking about your trust level in me, putting in that. Now, just, just if you're having a hard time picturing this, a, about a couple years ago, I had this really um, good idea, I thought, at the time that I should do pull-ups. Notice I'm talking the past tense. It's been a minute. But I was just like, I should do pull-ups. It seems like it's a good idea. I used to do them when I was a kid and enjoyed them. And so I went on Amazon and I bought one of those, like, pull-up bars that you, like, it swings out and you attach to your door frame. You guys know what I'm talking about? 
And it comes in the mail, and I'm like, I'm like pumped. I'm like, cool, I'm going to do pull-ups every day. And so I like, and I assemble it, and I find a door that kind of works, and it's in my girl's room, kind of has like the best room. So I, I just set it there. I'm like, okay, I'm going to leave it set up. And I remember looking at it being like, I don't know if I really trust this thing. You know, and so I do the whole, like, I pull down on it, and it's pretty secure. So then I kind of, like, lift one leg up. I'm like, yeah, it still kind of feels a little sketchy. So I called one of my kids over and hung them on it. I'm like, yeah, it's working for them, so I guess it works. And slowly but surely, I would, like, lift both legs up quickly. And, and, and little by little, I'm, I'm using pistuyo. See, I'm, I'm not believing it because I see its existence or I see how it works or I understand the texture of it. The minute Pistuyo is active, it is the minute my feet get off the ground. I'm putting the weight of my body against this pull-up bar, and if it doesn't work, I'm going to feel it. Well, interestingly enough, about three months later, I felt that thing fail, and I've never used it since. So Jesus is using that same sort of invitation to them. He says, listen, you're troubled because your feet are still on the ground. You're observing me. You're following me. But if you really want peace in your heart, you're going to have to lift your feet up. You're going to have to put the full weight of your life in me. And when you do that, I want to tell you something about me. I'm not sitting sitting idly by, but I'm actively doing what? I'm preparing a place for you. Now, in this moment, Jesus draws from the Jewish imagination of a wedding, or rather a betrothal. So in that time, when a husband would want to marry a woman. He would go normally with his whole family to this his future wife's family, and they would begin a conversation that would be like, you know, I would like to marry daughter, and the father of the bride would say, how many cows do you got? You know, and they would begin this bartering system to make an arrangement that would combine not just these two individuals, but these two families together. Once they came to an agreement, the, the husband-to-be... They would technically be married. There would be some sort of kind of ceremony, not their wedding, that would solidify that they will be married. And at that point, he would go home, and he would spend the next nine months to a year building an extension on his father's house. And once that extension was done, he would go back and retrieve his wife, and they would have a week-long wedding celebration and bring her back to this house that he's prepared. This is the same language Jesus is using for his disciples. He says, I'm going away for a little bit. But while I'm away, there's two things I want you to know. Number one, put the full weight of your life in me. Trust me with everything you've got. Why? Because I'm not just away for no reason. I'm away because I'm preparing something for you. I'm getting something ready for you. So the way you live your life right now should be active in the same way that Jesus' time away from us right now is active. He's inviting us into a way of life of trust and of love, what he just said before. Because while he's preparing a place for us, we are actively at work in here, doing these things back for him, trusting him, loving him, and loving others. And when we do this, when we have an active view of Jesus preparing a place for us, it creates in us the ability to have a non-anxious presence in this world. Blaise Pascal said that in difficult times, you must keep something beautiful in your heart. I think Jesus knew that. He knew what the disciples were about to see and experience, and he 
placed in their hearts something beautiful to look forward to so that they could move forward into that moment. And I recognize you might be here this morning and it'd be like, man, I don't, it's hard for me to understand or to, to believe that Jesus is doing that. And I just want to encourage you, listen, this is not some empty mythological promise just to make you feel better. This is Jesus saying, I'm, I'm promising this myself. Lastly, in verses 5 through 7, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered with these famous and sobering line, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And we talked about how that phrase, love one another, is used three times. There's another phrase in the same passage used three times, and it's the phrase, the way. Jesus seems to be reminding his disciples that the invitation he's extending them into is not a set of beliefs. It's not a framework of morality. It is a way. This is why Jesus again and again in his conversations with his disciples are saying, follow me. It involves a directional shift in your life towards the person of Jesus and not a stagnant sense of observation. It requires us to move towards him, to follow him. And I recognize that that phrase, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, is one that's hard to swallow in our culture. Because there's a level of exclusivity to that statement. As a culture, we would have loved if Jesus would have just said, he is a way, he's a truth, and he's a life. But he doesn't say that. He says very definitively, he's the way. Meaning, there is no other way than him. Oxford has told us that we live in a post-truth era, which no one told Jesus 2,000 years ago when he made the statement that he's actually not just a truth, he's the truth. No one told him that there wasn't going to be truth 2,000 years later. But as followers of Jesus, we believe these things to be true and that he is the life. And I have to be honest with you, as, as a follower of Jesus, we're not outside of the strong current of the cultural pull around us. Even as followers of Jesus, we would love for things to carry our cultural values of inclusivity. And that's largely a product who we are. Andy Crouch in his book, Culture Maker, talks about how in the 1990s, Christianity's response to culture was to condemn it. And it started this movement called the Fundamentalists. After World War II, it began to shift in the 1950s. And rather than condemning culture, they began to critique culture. People like C.S. Lewis and A.W. Tozer and Francis Schaeffer began to give a cultural critique. In the 1970s and 80s, Christianity began to copy culture. Think of every Christian band that came out of the 80s and 90s. But more presently... Our version of Christianity today just wants to consume culture. 
We just want to be as close to culture as we possibly can. And the danger with that, my friends, is that that phrase of Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, is becoming increasingly hard to swallow. And what I want to be very honest with you, there is no Christianity without the way and the truth and the life being Jesus. And if you are here, whether you're brand new to this or whether you've been doing this for a long time, that is the invitation. But I also want to remind you this, this wasn't just a, this isn't just a contemporary modern problem. This is actually an ancient one. This is why in Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So this is not just a, like a Western progressive secularist thing. This is a human thing. And Jesus says, the way, that, the way to follow me is narrow and hard. But I want to remind you also what Jesus said just a few chapters later in Matthew's gospel. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So check this out. Jesus says this, just a few chapters apart from each other. He says, if you want to follow me, it's narrow and it's hard. But if you follow me, the weight that you carry is easy and it's light. He says, the world will offer you a way that is broad and it's easy. But in comparison, my friends, the burden you carry will be crushingly heavy. So we're offered a choice this morning. Are you willing to follow the slow art, the way of Jesus that is narrow and hard? But I promise you, my friends, there is a burden on you that is easy and light because he walks with you. Because the alternative is you will follow what the world offers, which is broad and it's easy. And in that way, it's very convincing and compelling. But I want to promise you after countless hours of pastoring people, the weight that accompanies that broad road is crushing. And at the end of us answering the invitation of Jesus to say, yes, I want to receive your love and love like you. I want to to put my full weight of my life in you. What will happen is, yes, there may be a sense of saying, Jesus, maybe for the first time, you are the way. There's not a lot of ways. You are the truth. I don't get to make up my own truth because you promised me life and the only life I've been longing for. And when I do that, then all of a sudden that burden and that thing comes off and I realize I'm yoked with Jesus and he walks with me. There's an ease and there's a lightness to this. And so my friends, our invitation this morning as we live in between resurrection and new creation. It's the same invitation Jesus gave to his disciples 2,000 years ago. Will you follow him? Will you follow him, Christian, who've been going to church for decades? Will you follow him, someone who's recently just given your life over to Jesus? Will you follow him, the person who you've been sitting back at a distance observing? The invitation, regardless of where you're at on your journey, remains the same. Will you follow me? And when we do, we submit ourselves. Not only to the one who governs the universe and is the king highly enthroned, but the one who knows us and invites us into the fullness of life. Last quote, Eugene Peterson says, 
Our lives are lived well only when they are lived on the terms of their creation. With God loving and us being loved. With God making and us being made. With God revealing and us understanding. With God commanding and us responding. Being a Christian means accepting the terms of creation. Accepting God as our maker and redeemer and growing day by day into an increasingly glorious creature in Christ. Developing joy and experiencing love and maturing in peace. By the grace of Christ, we experience the marvel of being made in the image of God. But if we reject this way, the only alternative is to attempt to the hopelessly fourth-rate, embarrassingly awkward imitation of God, of God made in the image of men and women like us. Would you stand to your feet with me? If you're here this morning and you're just like, I want to do that, but how do I do that? How do I follow Jesus? How do I know who I am and who he is and how do we do this? Unapologetic plug for next week, we start a brand new series to answer this question that's been set up by today. How do we follow in the way of Jesus? Who are we? What does this life look like? How do we live in response to what he's done for us? We'll spend the next few months as a church journeying in that direction. But we're going to spend the next few minutes worshiping. Lord, my hope is that you truly would find yourself being re-asked by Jesus. Follow me. Will you follow me? So, Father, we thank you so much. You invite us into the slow art of transformation. You're gracious and you take your time with us. Lord, I pray that you would remind us and whisper in our own hearts today, would you follow me into the way and the truth and the life? In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.